Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. All right, let's go ahead and begin class of prayer this morning. Our gracious Father in heaven, we ask that you would bless us this morning with insight and wisdom and discernment. As we come before you, we open our hearts to you and, and ask that we will be able to see you more clearly, become like you, become more effective agents in your cause to represent the truth about you in this world. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number nine in our quarterly, The Prophetic Gift. And the lesson title this week is The Integrity of the Prophetic Gift. And the lesson authors are focusing on the question this week of regarding the prophetic writings or whether they are reliable or not. And in particular, uh, what do you do when a prophetic writer borrows writings from another person? That's uh, one of the uh, concerns they have. Does it matter to you if you read a prophetic writing and you discover that that, that that author borrowed whatever it is they're writing from someone else? Do we have any examples in Scripture where that's happened? Did Christ borrow from Isaiah and the Old Testament prophets when he spoke? Almost got written down. every author of the New Testament borrowed from the Old Testament prophets and wrote. There's no question. We've got examples. How, how, does it bother you if a, if a prophetic writer not only borrows from a previous prophet, but makes a different interpretation or a different application than the original writer did. Does that trouble you? No? Yes? Maybe? Don't know? Let's give an example. Um, Matthew 1, 23 and 24. You can check in your versions. Matthew 1, 23 and 24, Matthew writes, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. And some versions will say, actually, the prophet Isaiah in the text. Um, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. If you look in your margins of your Bible, you, most of the Bibles will have a little reference, and it will tell you it's, it's quoting Isaiah 7.14. Check Isaiah 7.14. When Isaiah wrote Isaiah 7.14, was Isaiah speaking about the Messiah hundreds of years in the future, and was Isaiah speaking about a virgin? Matthew took Isaiah's text and applied it to Christ, but was that what Isaiah meant? Well, here's what it reads in Isaiah 7.14 in the NIV. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call his name Emmanuel. Here's the good news version. Well then, the Lord himself will give you a sign. A young woman who is pregnant will have a son and we'll name him Emmanuel. Was Isaiah referring to a virgin or for, to a young woman? Don't know? Well, it was supposed to be a sign to, to them in that day that everything was going to be okay. So it wouldn't have been helpful to have, to have it be thousands of years later when Christ would be born. So you're suggesting that we need to check the context, not just read the verse. Look what was happening in the setting when this was given. And so if we go back and, and, and start a little bit before, in chapter 7, you guys look in your Bibles and read the story there. In chapter 7, um, Judah, the kingdom of Judah, is being threatened by invaders, the king Rezin of Aram and Pekah, son of the king of Israel. And the Lord sent Isaiah to King Ahaz of Judah and told King uh, uh, Ahaz of Judah... Isaiah said, the Lord says, don't worry, these kings will not prevail against you. Ask the Lord for a sign. 
that he can give you to let you know that he's going to intervene, basically, and these kings aren't going to prevail. And King Ahaz says, oh, I'm not going to ask the Lord for a sign. And we read this starting in verse 10 and 11. It says, Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to a test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now the house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you then try the patience of my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. But before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid to waste. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. So when Isaiah wrote 714, do you think Isaiah thought he was talking about a sign, a child to be born hundreds of years to the future? Or do you think when Isaiah wrote 714, he was talking about a child to be born in the very near future would be a sign to King Ahaz, and that uh, before this child is old enough to know right and wrong, the Syrian king will come and take care of King Rezin and Pekah. Which do you think? Which way do you think? Thoughts? It was a more immediate sign. Now, so if you, in case you have any questions about the Hebrew used there for the word virgin, um, I put it in our notes for those who'd like, but from the Strong's Lexicon and the Theological Word Book of the Old Testament, it's got it here for you. It's, it's a, a young woman, sexually mature, of marital age, which may or may not be sexually active. So the word is not exclusively virgin. It just means a young woman. It could or could not be sexually active. Yes? That term is also referenced in Genesis 24, 43, and it just says, See, I am standing beside the spring of a maiden. That's right. It means maiden, young woman, uh, marital age. That's, that's what it means, yes. Mm -hmm. Exactly right. And so the, the question we're talking about here, the, the question the quarterly wants us to look at is, what do we do when one person with a prophetic gift takes writings from another person and uses those writings. Do we have, are we comfortable with that? Is that permissible? Can they take writings from another prophet and completely reinterpret them and reapply them in a way not originally intended? If we believe that the, that the prophet is led by the Lord to write what they wrote, then I see no problem with that. Because the Lord obviously impressed him to use that other writing that was already written to bring out a new concept that we had thought of. Yes. But how do we determine that? How do we determine that that was the intent that God wanted them to take it from? That God wanted Matthew to take it and reapply it. Yeah. Rather than Matthew just reapplying it. Um, question, thoughts about that? Don't we, uh, don't we do the same thing in science all the time? Uh, some scientific uh, hypothesis or a theory that was determined 50 years ago uh, with another 50 years of, of knowledge and, and intelligence and, and light shed on this uh, hypothesis brings us to a, a new, uh, different conclusion. That's true, but that's evidence leading us in a different direction. This is actually 
What was the prophet Isaiah's intention when he wrote this? As far as the prophet Isaiah was concerned. Do you think the prophet Isaiah, from what we read, let's give a little more evidence first before we draw the conclusion. Right after he finishes this discussion with Ahaz, uh, go, to, go to chapter 8, verse 1. Actually, verse 3 and 4. It says, right after this, he says, Then I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said to me, Name him Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Before the boy knows how to say my mother and my father, the wealth of Damascus and the plunder of Samaria will be carried off by the king of Assyria. So we have a promise given to Ahaz. There's going to be a child born to a young woman. And before that child is old enough to know the right from the wrong, the king of Assyria is going to come. And then right below that, the prophet goes to his wife. She has a child. And before the child can say my mother and my father, the king of Assyria comes. Was Isaiah talking? You think Isaiah in 714 was thinking about a Messiah hundreds of years in the future? Yes? Then what about the part in 714 where it says that we'll call him Emmanuel? We'll call him Emmanuel. But who are they referring to? Who would Isaiah be referring to? If you, you know, Emmanuel is also referred to, to more than just the Redeemer. If you took, take your Bible and type in Emmanuel, um, Emmanuel uh, is, is used to refer to, um, oh man, I wish I would have put that in my notes because I looked it up last night. I'll bring you back that next week because uh, it takes your wife to stump you, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Is not the issue because look at the prophet Balaam, mm-hmm. who said things that Balaam himself didn't want to say. So do we don't we don't think Isaiah wanted to say this? No, no, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that there's a that there's a, what God intends with the prophecy. Okay. So, so, so when Isaiah gave this to King Ahaz, what was God's intention for Ahaz to understand? Was God's intention for Ahaz to understand that there'd be a Messiah coming hundreds of years down the road? Or was God's intention for Ahaz to understand, I'm going to deliver you here and now, and I'm going to give you a sign here and now that you're going to get delivered from these two kings that are threatening you? Well, I agree with that. But just that God always has bigger intentions than okay. we know it. And I think you're picking up on a little bit of a different point. We're getting, it's in the lesson. It's a very good point. And that is sometimes the prophets don't fully understand what they write. Right. Yeah, God, God can have them say or prophesy or something that they don't really comprehend all of it. And that's a very good point that's in the lesson, too. Yes? So, if the text is fulfilled in some way in the future, does it really matter? Because if, you know, is it possible that it can be applied to two scenarios? And if it is fulfilled, who cares? Well, that's the question. But the question is, not whether the original prophecy was fulfilled. That's not the question. The question is, can a writer take something that somebody else has written and reapply it, reinterpret it, and be comfortable? That's what we're looking at. That's the question. So, yeah, I think it's important that it was fulfilled. But does this, if we accept what we're talking about here, does it undermine our confidence in Matthew? Does it undermine our confidence in the Savior being our Messiah, Jesus? Well, no, because if you keep reading Isaiah, just a few verses later, we have another child. See, we have the child in 714 that Isaiah promises uh, uh, to, uh, to Ahaz to be assigned. But if we read just in the next chapter, chapter 9, we read about another child who's promised. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, 
And the government will be on his shoulders. And he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Is this talking about the Maher Shalom Hasbash? Is this text talking about that child? No. This text isn't talking about the child coming to Ahaz, to, to assign to Ahaz. This text is talking about the, the Redeemer, isn't it? Our Messiah. Yes. In Matthew 24, you have the destruction of Jerusalem intertwined with like the end times. And uh, possibly these several of these other prophecies are the same way. And being able, uh, Matthew is able to interpret the other side of that specific prophecy. I like that idea. I think so Stanley was suggesting that a moment ago, that, that an application has a now application and has maybe another application later. So prophecies can also repeat themselves. So other examples of Bible writers borrowing from other Bible writers. Hebrews 8 to 10, New Covenant. This is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel after that time, says the Lord. Write my law in your hearts and minds. That came right out to direct quote out of Jeremiah. Direct quote out Jeremiah. You'll find that through all scripture. Um, let's turn to Sunday's lesson. And as we start Sunday's lesson, I've asked Linda to read for us um, the, the text in Sunday's lesson. 1 Kings 22, 1 through 23. 1 Kings 22, 1 through 23. She'll read this story for us, and, uh, and then we'll discuss it. Go ahead, Linda. This is about the prophet Micaiah warning Ahab. There was peace between Israel and Syria for the next two years, but in the third year, King Jehoshaphat of Judah went to see King Ahab of Israel. Ahab asked his officials, Why is it that we have not done anything to get back Ramoth and Gilead from the king of Syria? It belongs to us. And Ahab asked Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to attack Ramoth? I'm ready when you are, Jehoshaphat answered, and so are my soldiers, my cavalry. But let's first consult the Lord. So Ahab called in the prophets, about 400 of them, and asked them, Should I go and attack Ramoth or not? Attack it, they answered. The Lord will give you victory. But Jehoshaphat asked, Isn't there another prophet through whom we can consult the Lord? Ahab answered, There is one more, Micaiah, son of Imlah, but I hate him because he never prophesies anything good for me. It's always something bad. Well, you shouldn't say that, Jehoshaphat replied. Then Ahab called in a court official and told him to go and get Micaiah at once. The two kings, dressed in their royal robes, were sitting on their thrones at the threshing place just outside the gate of Samaria, and all the prophets were prophesying in front of them. One of them, Zebedekiah, son of Shinahan, made iron horns and said to Ahab, This is what the Lord says, With these you will fight the Syrians and totally defeat them. All the other prophets said the same thing. March against Ramoth and you will win, they said, and the Lord will give you victory. Well, meanwhile, the official who had gone to get Micaiah said to him, All the other prophets have prophesied success for the king, and you had better do the same. But Micaiah answered, By the living Lord, I promise that I will say what he tells me to. When he appeared before King Ahab, the king asked him, Micaiah, should King Jehoshaphat and I go and attack Ramoth or not? Attack, Micaiah answered. Of course you'll win. The Lord will give you victory. But Rahab replied, When you speak to me in the name of the Lord, you tell the truth. How many times do I have to tell you that? 
Micaiah answered, I can see the army of Israel scattered over the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, These men have no leader. Let them go home in peace. Ahab said to Jehoshaphat, Didn't I tell you that he never prophesies anything good for me? It's always something bad. Micaiah went on. Now listen to what the Lord says. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne in heaven with all his angels standing beside him. The Lord asked, Who will deceive Ahab so that he will go and be killed at Ramah? Some of the angels said one thing and the others said something else until a spirit stepped forward, approached the Lord and said, I will deceive him. How, the Lord asked, the spirit replied, I will go and make all of Ahab's prophets tell lies. And the Lord said, Go and deceive him, for you will succeed. And Micaiah concluded, This is what has happened. The Lord has made these prophets of yours lie to you, but he himself has decreed that you will meet with disaster. What do you think about that story? Is God a liar? No. Does he send angels to lie? Does he instruct his prophets to lie? Does God use deception, deceit, or falsehood? What did you hear in this story? Because some people believe that, that God uses these things. Who does the Bible say is the father of lies? John 8, 44. Satan is the father of lies. In James, it says that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. James 1.13 says, For when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Hmm. How do we understand this story? Why would the prophet Micaiah say that, uh, that there was a meeting in heaven, angels came and said, I will be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of the prophets, and I will deceive him, and the Lord says, go do it. How do we understand it? Does this raise any questions for anybody? Yes. I'm very comfortable that I'm speaking from a vast sea of ignorance. However, <laughs> it, it seems that, particularly in the Old Testament and certainly into the New Testament, it's, it's clear that in their culture, they ascribe everything to God, good or evil and everything was caused by God, where we might say, now we might say aloud, and, and so it might be very natural for this prophet, and, and granted he did it in a very dramatic way, but he might be expressing things that were happening in, in a way that was consistent with their, their view of the world and how things related. Um, it was very common throughout throughout scripture. You know, God did this, God caused, I mean, the whole story of Job, there's lots of different times where we have strange wording that seems odd to us. Okay, so let, let's take that and build a little evidence. He's, he's telling us that in Old Testament times, they, the way they viewed their minds, the way their worldview was that God caused pretty much, pretty much everything. Good and bad both came out from God. 
didn't matter what happened. And ultimately, in the end, God was the one doing it. This is their mindset. Let's look for some biblical evidence for that to see if they support that. Just one quick example, and we've looked at this example before, but it's really profound how, how to us, with our Western mind, our modern mind, it's like unbelievable that, that it's even stated like this. But in 1 Samuel 31, 4 through 6, we're going to read about the end of King Saul. It says, Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer was terrified and would not do it, so Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When the armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men died together on the same day. Now, from 1 Samuel 31, 4 through 6, how did Saul die? Who killed Saul? We would call that today suicide. First Chronicles 10, 13, and 14. Saul died because he was unfaithful to the Lord. He did not keep the word of the Lord and even consulted a medium for guidance and did not inquire of the Lord. So the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David. That's First Chronicles 10, 13, and 14. Look it up. The Lord put him to death. Who put Saul to death? Saul. Saul. Or, wait a minute, we didn't have the privilege, like in the book of Job, to have the veil pulled back so we could see the angelic host. There were really angels forcing his arms against his will. He was struggling, no, no! And they were forcing him down on his sword. Is that what happened? No. Saul did this himself. But their mindset, this is evidence of your point, their mindset was... Well, if he died, then God had to do it because he was king and he couldn't die unless God killed him, so God had to put him to death because God is the one who's ultimately in charge of everything. That mindset still exists today. Tell me how that mindset exists today. Do y'all see it today? Do people still think this way? insurance policy, uh, hurricanes call an act of God. Earthquake is an act of God. (laughs) How many believe in our own church that in the future uh, there's going to be a whole series of plagues that God inflicts upon the world? Do we, do we hear that sometimes? Hmm. He permits it to take place because man has so aligned himself against God that it has to take place. It, it, yeah, but does it take place? Do, do we see, are we are our minds primitive like this? That when it takes place, we see God as inflicting it? Or do we see that it's God not intervening to stop it? Are those two different things? <coughs> yes? Uh, could you give the First Chronicles... Uh... First Chronicles 10, 13, and 14. Getting back to the, the story that Linda, Linda read, it, it could not be the same process. It could not a deceiving spirit. Uh, one of Satan's angels said, pick me, pick me. And well, uh, you know. I said, well, okay, I allow it. I think that's what the point we're getting to, is that now, with this mindset, people, primitive, not really understanding, believing God does everything, if you were to go back in time, little time machines, zoop, right back to this time, and you wanted, and there was starting to be an outbreak of, of black plague, bubonic plague, which is, as you know, uh, caused by Yersinius pestis and spread by fleas, um, and you wanted to teach them that they needed to have better hygiene and, and better, uh, you know, uh, health principles and so forth, would you try to explain the science about bacteria to these people? Would they listen? Hey, there's little microorganisms that you can't see that are making you sick. Or would you have more luck if you said, look, if you don't do this, God is going to rain a plague down on you. 
Which would they be more likely to listen to? The threat that God's going to rain a plague down if you don't do this. You see, a lot of this stuff is, is what's happening back here. Their minds, it says in Isaiah 60, darkness covered the people, gross darkness, the people. And when you deal with people whose minds are darkened, you know, you have to... One of the things they taught us in psychiatry uh, when I was in my residency is that um, we don't have the privilege of putting people where we want them to be when we meet them. You see, we have to start with where they are. It was, a, it was kind of the rules of golf. If anybody plays golf, you play the ball where it lies. If it's in the sand trap, you can't go and move it up to the green so you have an easier shot. Okay? Um, and with people, uh, we have to start with where their mindset is, with where their understanding is, where their perspectives or their attitudes are. That's where we start, right where they are. And then we begin to move them away from that to a healthier, healthier insights. And it's interesting in this story uh, that Micaiah, he, he felt very uncomfortable telling the truth because he knew he was going to get thrown in jail or get killed. He was telling something completely different than the other prophets. So he set a scene of, hey, this is perhaps what's going on with the other prophets. And I thought that was kind of interesting. But first, he gave quite a sarcastic remark. Well, well, that's what I wanted to point I'm so glad you pointed that out. Notice the flow and the context here. Micaiah's first statement. We, when we read this, what we lose is we lose the tonal inflections. We don't, we don't get that, 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 the tone, the attitude, the facial expressions. But notice from the response what we get from Micaiah. Micaiah says, go up there and you're going to win. Ahab immediately responds, haven't I told you to always tell me the truth? So obviously the way he said it made Ahab not believe him. He already had 400 of the prophets tell him that he's going to be successful. And Micaiah's first words were, going up there, you're going to win. But somehow it was said so that Ahab didn't believe him. I wanted to put that inflection in there, but I didn't dare. But I'm very good at sarcasm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and so Ahab didn't believe him. And what happens? Then, then he comes back and tells the story. And as he tells the story, this is the key. Was the story intended to obscure the truth, or was the story's intent to expose and bring to light the truth? To expose it. So was the story given to deceive, or was the story given to enlighten? Yeah. Notice that this is very critical to notice that. See, sometimes we, we just take the story as it reads and say, oh, there's lying. No, 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 no. This story's impact was not a statement of what was really happening in heaven. The story's impact was to bring the mind of the people to understand the light. God does not want you to go into this battle. You've been lied to by these prophets. That's the truth. The truth of what was actually happening to them was being brought out. Yes? Um, First Chronicles 10, verse uh, 4 and 5. It repeats the same thing about him falling on his sword. So it makes me think that possibly the whole causative effect of God killing Saul might have been sort of like how David told um, the people to pull back from Bathsheba's husband when he was at the wall. So David didn't directly kill him, but by causing the other people to turn back, it caused his death. So, so there your, might have been your implication still a is that God was causing the death of Saul. I mean, that's what it says here, so I'm assuming that there's that possibility. I mean. Okay. Um, explain to us how that works when Saul... So, so we either have Saul doing this of his own free will, or we have somehow behind the scene God forcing against Saul's will 
the fact that Saul's being pushed down on his sword by angelic forces, and, and we can't see that. So well, when, in the, when all of your people run away from a battle, and you might be injured or whatever, he was worried that they were, the Philistines were going to catch up to him and do him harm, and he couldn't outrun them, right? So he only had two choices, basically, either kill himself or let the Philistines do it. So He could have tried to run. We don't know whether he could have escaped or not. I think that makes sense because I think sometimes what he's talking about is consequences. He was in a situation where consequences developed around him that his choices, we can still Whose choices, though? Saul's. Saul's Saul's free will was to kill himself in a situation that was the result of consequences. And sometimes our consequences narrow down. We don't even have all of the choices we would like. We still have free will. But we don't still have the array of choices that we would like to have. It's so like so then is that God imposing this upon us? No. And doing it to us, or is that the consequence of our choice? If I jump off a, a building free, freely, and I'm floating down, and when I hit the bottom, did God break my legs? No, but I think when we talk about God not holding back the winds of strife, I think that sometimes happens all along. I think sometimes God does not... I think... We do have consequences, and I think sometimes God can rescue us. There's no question. He's and been, he's been on a rescue mission as soon as Adam took the fruit. But God's on a rescue mission. Specifically and intentionally, he rescues us. For instance, I don't know, at the Red Sea or other times where he miraculously intervened and stopped a course of events. And I think sometimes he does not stop a course of events that have so narrowed down that our choices are very limited. And let's 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 take this a little further to follow up on another story in Kings. Your point, false choices resulting in his circumstance that led to him killing himself rather than God doing it to him. Let's look at another story in Kings that relates directly to this and our question, does God use deceptive practices or means? And where do we find that story? We find that story in 1 Kings 20, starting in verse 35. 1 Kings just two chapters before, 1 Kings 20, starting in verse 35. I'm going to read you a few verses here through 42. It says, By the word of the Lord, one of the sons of the prophets said to his companions, Strike me with your weapon. But the man refused. So the prophet said, Because you have not obeyed the Lord, as you, have, as you leave me, a lion will kill you. And after, after the man went away, a lion found him and killed him. The prophet found another man and said, Strike me, please. So the man struck him and wounded him. Then the prophet went and stood by the road, waiting for the king. This is King Ahab. Um, waiting for the king. He disguised himself with his headband down over his eyes. As the king passed by, the prophet called out to him, Your servant went into the thick of the battle, and someone came to me with the captive and said, Guard this man. If he is missing, it will be your life or his life, or you must pay a talent of silver. While your servant was busy here and there, the man disappeared. That is your sentence, the king of Israel said. You have pronounced it on yourself. Then the prophet quickly removed his headband from his eyes, and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. He said to the king, This is what the Lord says, You have set free a man I had determined should die. Therefore, it is your life for his life, your people for his people. Was, uh, was God using deceptive practices here? 
because the prophet disguised himself and pretended to be a soldier. Some would suggest that God deceives. Sounds like he was meeting him where the king was again. Well, we have to know the context again. The context here, if you just read, go back and start at the beginning of uh, chapter 20, there was a king of Assyria, excuse me, the king of Aram, uh, Ben-Hadad, who uh, continues to want to attack Israel. And God delivers the people the first time because he attacks in the mountains, and after the attack in the mountains and the Israelites win, um, the, the uh, prophets of Aram come to the king and says, look, their gods are the gods of the mountains. They're strong in the mountains. Uh, let's attack them in the valleys and the plains, and, and then we'll win in the plains. Okay? And, um, and so the, the prophet comes to, um, come to King Ahab and says, um, you know, he's going to be victorious, you're going to win. And uh, so they go out there and they, and they have this battle over 100,000. 100,000. You know, we're upset that we've had how many soldiers die in Iraq. 100,000 of the soldiers of Aram were killed. And the, this king, Ben-Hadad, flees and hides, and his, and his counselors tell him, uh, repent with sackcloth and ashes to King Ahab and put a rope around your neck and beg him to spare your life. And so they do, and, Ahab, and King Ahab sets him free and lets him go. And after he does that, you get this enacted parable here is somebody saying to king, I, I was wounded. I had somebody put in charge of me, a, a captive I was to be in charge of. I let him loose and let him go. What should happen? A life for a life. He said, yep, you pronounced the sentence on yourself. The prophet disguised represents King Ahab. The captive he was supposed to be holding represents Ben-Hadad. God had determined that this wicked king who repeatedly attacked Israel needed to be dealt with. Ahab let him go. And the prophecy comes right here. Because of your choice in not following what the Lord had put in your hands and not doing what he says, your life is going to be taken. And two chapters later, we find it's the same group of people, this group from Aram that he's in battle with, that ends up costing him his life. Yes? How is it natural consequences for that lion to kill the guy that didn't strike the prophet? Yeah, I don't know that that's a natural consequence. But what does it mean that the lion killed the prophet? Or the friend of the prophet? It suggests either that God did it or that the prophet... I mean, because the guy had two choices to either hit him or not hit him, right? And so... And the prophet prophesied that he would be eaten by the lion because he didn't strike him. So it seems like the lion was controlled by some sort of... So this brings up another question. What happens when God intervenes to put people in the grave? This is the other question. It's a different question than what we were talking about, but it's been raised. How about Azza? Was that a natural consequence? When Azza touched the ark and was struck down, was that a natural consequence? I think God intervenes in an emergency way sometimes because it is an emergency and he has to say something big to get their attention. It's imperative that we remember the grand, the great controversy, the, the larger view. When Jesus said to the, to the young lady, uh, when Jesus went to the funeral of the little girl and they were all wailing and crying, and Jesus said, the little girl is not dead, she's asleep. What did the people do? Say it? They laughed at him. Why did they laugh at him when Jesus said, she's not dead, she's asleep? Why did they laugh? Their concept of death is different than God's concept. From their perspective, what, what did they know? 
She was dead. When Jesus said, she is not dead, but asleep, was Jesus trying to deceive them, to confuse them, to darken their minds? Was he lying to them? Was he misrepresenting reality to them? When Lazarus died and he said to his disciples, Lazarus has fallen asleep and I need to go wake him up. The disciples say, well, if he's asleep, he'll do fine. Jesus spoke in a language that they could understand. He said, Lazarus is dead. When Jesus said to the disciples that Lazarus was asleep and he needed to wake him up, was Jesus trying to confuse the disciples? Was he trying to darken their minds? Was he trying to make it difficult for them to understand? Or was he shining heavenly light down to help open their minds to the heavenly realities of what's happening on this planet right now? You see, what we call death is not what was said in the beginning, in the day you eat, you will surely die. God didn't say, in the day you eat of the tree, you will surely sleep. It doesn't say the wages of sin is sleep. In, in Romans 6.23. In, in James chapter 1, it doesn't say sin, when it is full grown, will bring forth sleep. What we call death is not what God calls death. What God calls death is non-existence, gone for all eternity. No longer here. We call death, God calls asleep. It's a transition period. It's a, it's a period of, of suspended animation. All people through all time, righteous and wicked, are coming back. They're being resurrected. Jesus said in John 10, 28, I think it's 10, 28, there's a resurrection of life and a resurrection of damnation. Both the righteous and the wicked are coming out of the graves. So when we look at stories like Uzzah, we look at stories like um, this prophet and the lion, we don't draw conclusions that they're being punished, that they're going to be lost. Both of those people may, may very well be in heaven. Yes? When I get to heaven, I would very much like for God to do a replay of that scene because I don't understand it either. I would like to see the body language, the facial expression of Azim. I would like to know, did he do it because he sincerely did he keep this thing upright? Or did he possibly think God cannot take care of this and so I'm going to help? I would like to know all of the background of this. And until then, I'm just going to have to accept the fact that he was struck dead, and God knows the best. He, he was struck dead, he was put to sleep. Well, whichever, he was put to sleep. Does it make a difference? Yeah, but in the human's point of view, at that point, in that moment, he was dead. I understand that, but... We are children of light. We are to be growing in our understanding. We are called in John 15 to be friends of Christ. No longer do I call you servants. I call you friends because servants don't understand their master's business. We are called to a higher comprehension, to move to this greater perspective, to try as far as possible see things from heaven's view, heaven's view aren't we? So, what's the Uzzah story. What was the point of striking down Uzzah? Was it, because, was it to punish Uzzah? Who, who was it designed to get to? David. King David. David was the one who was in disobedience here. It was designed to get to King David. Now, we don't know Uzzah's heart. It very well could have been that Uzzah said, you know what, I, I'm such a, you know, I, I love God so much, I'm willing to give my life so he can reach David. I know I'm going to get struck down, but that's okay. Reach David, Lord. We don't know. He may not have. It's a, it's a stretch, but, but we don't know his heart, do we? 
And we don't know which resurrection he's coming up in. And so when we think about Old Testament stuff, there's a critical thing. I'll get you in just a second. It's a critical thing we have to remember. If you notice that before the cross and after the cross, that since the cross, we don't have any wickedness and hedonism and violence and all that kind of stuff they had before the cross. It's all better now, right? No, it's just as awful. But you notice before the cross, we find God doing something that you don't see. Notice, do you find God killing 185,000 Assyrians, uh, destroying the world by a flood, wiping out cities like Sodom and Gomorrah with fire from heaven, um, uh, putting, uh, wiping out platoons that come to arrest Elijah, Korah, David, and Byram, all these people. Uh, do you find God doing this all over the place since the cross? We don't have it. He's not doing it. And it's not because the world has gotten more righteous. It hasn't. Then why not? Because prior to the cross, as soon as man fell into sin, in Genesis chapter 3, it says that the seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head. What is that talking about? Genesis 3. As soon as sin happened, a Messiah was promised. Could God redeem this world, save us without Jesus coming? No. Could he? No. The plan was Jesus had to come. If Jesus never comes to earth, this earth doesn't get redeemed. We all agree with that? You think Satan understood that too? Satan began working to shut down any avenue through which the Messiah would come. At one point, the Bible, there was one righteous man left on the earth. His name was Noah. The avenue for which people would work and cooperate with God got really, 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 really narrow. And God... I think with tears in his eyes, said, it's time to step in. Suspend. Let, let, let's just put these kids in timeout. What do I mean by timeout? You had uh, tw- uh, 10 kids, five over the age of 20, five under the age of five, or five under the age of seven. The old ones are violent abusers, drug addicts, pedophiles. They're coming after your little kids to, to, to abuse them, molest them, and, and hurt them. And every time you try to redeem your older kids, these are your children, every time you try to redeem the older ones, they try to kill you. If you had the ability not to kill them, simply to put them in cryogenic storage, literally, if you could do it, if you could suspend them in time, just freeze them, long enough for your little kids to grow up safe, and then thaw them out so they can live their life, would you do it to protect your little kids? This is what God did in the Old Testament. He put everybody to sleep. They're all coming back again. With the same characters. with the same train of thought that they went into the grave, and this is what was happening. He was keeping, and you notice once Christ completed his mission, once Christ achieved all that was necessary for our salvation, God hasn't needed to do that anymore. He hasn't stepped in to keep open the channel. And so when we, when we look at stories like that in the Old Testament, where God, it's not a natural consequence, uh, God does step in to put somebody to rest. We have to understand it from the bigger picture. What was actually transpiring? A lot of people want to take those stories and make you believe in a God who will use his power to kill you, a God who will punish you for wickedness. Even those who teach that view, think it through. And I use their logic on them. God must inflict punishment for sin. Okay, does the God you worship punish people before judgment? How fair is that? We haven't even been judged yet. Are we being punished? Well, no, he doesn't inflict punishment for judgment. So all that stuff in the Old Testament is not punishment for sin. So you're saying from the flood that there will be a second resurrection, people who died in the flood. We well, I'm saying we don't know. How do we know there wasn't a little girl who was 12 years old who heard Noah preach and said, and maybe, maybe for no other reason, because what reason did you have to have to get on the ark? 
Did you have to believe in Noah to get on the ark? Or, or would you have been saved if, if for no other reason you liked animals and you were just following the animals on the ark? Would you still have been saved? Got on the boat. That's all, right. all you had to do is get on the boat, right? So, so how do we know there wasn't some little girl who loved animals and said, Man, I, I, that's cool. That's, that's the first zoo I've ever seen. I'm going to check this out. Okay? And they're following. And Daddy says, you're not embarrassing me. He's mayor of the town. Locks her in a room. We don't know that because somebody died in the flood that they're lost for eternity. We only know that they went to rest in the grave. There's a resurrection coming. But so there's no doubt, my understanding of how it plays out, the righteous from all time are raised at the at the end of the at the beginning of the thousand years. At the end of the thousand years, the New Jerusalem comes down from God with all the righteous, and then the wicked are, are raised with the gates of the New Jerusalem open. They're open, they're not closed. Why would that be the case? If you want to reveal the, How, the righteous, the character of the wicked. How can God bring, a, in, in a universe of true freedom, in a universe without coercion, in a universe where God doesn't hold a, a flaming sword to your throat and say, well, you better do what I say, I'm going to cut your head off. Okay, In a universe where we have true freedom, how can God bring a permanent end to sin problem without erasing every doubt from every mind? And so, if you had a loved one on the outside, one of the reasons that Jerusalem comes down with the gates open is so that when the wicked are raised, you will discover there are no angels with, with flaming swords barring the way to come into the, to Jerusalem. The wicked still won't come in. You may have a banner. You and your family may have, uh, that's wonderful there. Johnny, come on in. It's great. <laughs> Hanging over the wall. <laughs> and he still doesn't come. Why? John chapter 3, Jesus said, except the man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. But at his trial, he said to those who were crucifying him, you will see the Son of Man coming at the right hand of power. And in Revelation, it says that every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. You can't see the kingdom of God except you've been born again, but those who are clearly not born again are going to see him coming in power and great glory. Yes, because the kingdom of God is not a kingdom of power, it's a kingdom of love. And even though they see the power, they do not see the heart of God. They do not see the character of God. And what they see when they see the power is they see the lies of Satan. He's coming to get us. He's awful. He's a monster. He's a, he's a tormentor. He's a destroyer. He's a sadistic monster. And they run from him. And they won't come in the city. And I'll just give you their mindset. Just give you the mindset so that you'll understand why they won't come in. If you have somebody on the outside and you're pleading from the inside, come on in. Why they won't come. I want you to imagine that you have a loved one right now who has... Joined the Taliban. And he tells you how wonderful the Taliban is. And he invites you to join. What is the chances you're going to join? You Are you not convinced in your mind he's been deceived? You are so settled into the truth about that organization. See, when they're so settled in the lie about God, your testimony, your witness, your invitation is only an invitation. You've been deceived. You've been duped. They still won't come. <laughs> They still won't come. And so when we think about all these stories, we have to remember the, the great controversy perspective, what God's trying to do. He's trying to heal our minds for eternity. Yeah, bless you, you had a comment a while ago, and I, it was like 15 minutes ago your hand was up, and, and I apologize, I didn't get to it. Well, I just kind of lost track. Okay. But, uh, God is holy, and we don't understand holiness. For infinity, there's a lot of things that we don't understand. And, you know, just like the four men that come to Job. 
they all tried to uh, say, you know, have their theories and their rationales for uh, what they did. But what did God say in the end to them? And so we don't know. You think about all our lives and how He involves our lives. You know, He may have to do away with one person just to uh, straighten something out in somebody else's life. And when we trust Him, going along your, your, your thoughts there, if we look at the life of Jesus and believe Jesus' testimony, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, then whatever He's doing, we have confidence. No, it's always for healing, for saving, for redeeming, for, for restoring. He's always working to bring us back to health and happiness and love. Isn't that true? Yeah, maybe when we know that because of the life of Jesus. He is the lens through which we see this. And, and one of the great mistakes that happens is we start slicing the Bible into sections and we fail to let Jesus be, we fail to let the living word be the lexicon to understand the written word. Did you hear that? We fail to let the living word be the lexicon to understand the written word. And instead, we read the written word, and we draw all these ugly distortions instead of saying, okay, that's God in the Old Testament. What's the, what does that look like when I look through the lens of the life of Jesus? And suddenly, things change. Okay, Tuesday's lesson. It talks about the first paragraph of Tuesday's lesson. It talks about prophets. Let's see here. First paragraph. The prophets repeatedly pointed out that their messages came from God. Their position can be compared to that of earthly ambassadors who are sent out by earthly rulers and who are commissioned to represent their sovereign. In that capacity, they must adhere closely to the instructions they have received. The expression, the word of the Lord came unto me, uh, means that their message carries divine authority. Really? What, and if we talk about divine authority, what gives a message divine authority? If someone comes to you and says, Thus saith the Lord, does that mean, or the word of the Lord came unto me, does that mean that their message has divine authority? <laughs> How about if you know it's a prophet? If, if you know it's a prophet, you've already gone through the whole questioning, and I'm convinced this person is a prophet, and then that person comes to you and says, the word of the Lord came upon me. Thus saith the Lord. Then does it have divine authority? No. no. Yes? No? I heard a couple no's. Any yeses? No. If it passes all the tests. Hmm. If it passes all the tests, I mean, they're a prophet. You know, this is like this is like Nathan. This is like this is like Isaiah. This is like Jeremiah. Thus saith the Lord. The word of the Lord came unto me. Well, in Kings, it says, the old prophet answered the young prophet, I too am a prophet, as you are. And an angel said to me, by the word of the Lord, bring him back with you to your house so that he may eat bread and drink water. Scripture? But he was lying to him. So when that prophet, and you'll, if you read the whole context of the whole story, this is a prophet of the Lord. The prophet of the Lord speaks shortly thereafter, and, and what he says comes true. It says the word of the Lord came upon the old prophet who had lied and prophesies that the young prophet's going to die and not make it home, and he does. So when a prophet of the Lord comes and says, Thus saith the Lord, does that necessarily mean it has authority? Hmm. How do we understand this? Do you see, uh, there are people who would be very uncomfortable with what I just said. 
Because many, many people in our church particularly, but throughout Christianity as a whole, they have security when they can suspend their judgment to somebody else and say, and rest secured in the conclusions of another. The prophet has said, I'm supposed to do this. I'm going to do it. I feel safe now. I don't need to think about it. I just do what it says. And there's security that they get. They feel safe. I follow the rules. Do what I'm supposed to. Feel safe. Feel secure. I don't have to think. Don't have to understand anything. Don't have to reason anything out. Just got to do, because the prophet said it. I'm safe. It's all the prophet now. And if anything goes wrong, it's not my fault. I do what the prophet said. It's the prophet's fault. No personal responsibility to grow up. A lot of people rest safe because they claim the prophet. They don't understand what it means. They just claim the prophet. Paul said in Romans that every person should be fully persuaded in their own mind. In their own mind. You see, it doesn't do you any good to believe it, even if the prophet says it, if the only reason you're believing it is because the prophet said it. If you're not persuaded in your own mind, think it through. Any, any subject matter. Why do you brush your teeth? Well, my mom said it. That's why I do it. Okay? Is there any other reason? No, mom said it. Okay? Well, you will get the benefit of brushing your teeth. But if you're not persuaded in your own mind, when you grow up and leave the home, what's the likelihood you'll continue to do it if there's no persuasion in your mind? If you only do it because mom said it was a rule she had in her house, I don't know why, she just had that rule, then what's going to happen? You're going to quit. If you're not persuaded, it doesn't do you any good. God wants us to be persuaded about his goodness and his righteousness. Back to a divine authority, Luke chapter 1, 27. It says, the people were all amazed, I'm talking about Jesus' teaching, um, that they asked each other, what is this, a new teaching? And with authority, he even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. And then Luke 9, 1 and 2. When Jesus called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and cure diseases. And he said to them, preach the kingdom of God and heal the sick. What is it that gives something divine authority? That's the question. Divine authority. Is it miracles? No. Because these two said authority drove out demons. Authority drove out demons and healed the sick. He said, is it miracles? You're right, it's not. Why is it not miracles? Miracles can be counterfeited. I've got to finish this point, and I'll get some questions here. Um, miracles can be counterfeited. See if this gives any, any insight. Uh, John 17, 1 through 3. Listen closely to John 17, 1 through 3. Jesus praying to his Father. Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you gave him. Now this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, Jesus Christ now sent. Christ has given all authority, for what purpose? To give eternal life. And what is eternal life? Knowing God. So what is the authority that Christ has to give eternal life? The authority of the truth about God himself. That's the authority. You see, knowing God is, is eternal life. You've given me authority to give eternal life. So how do I give people eternal life? I give them you. I give them the knowledge of you, Father. That's my authority. Our authority. How does Christ give eternal life? He gives us authority. So our authority says to his disciples, Matthew 28, 18-20, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, name means character of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. What is our authority? The truth about God himself. 
his character, his methods, his principles. The truth destroys the lies that were told by the father of lies, wins people back to trust. Our authority is in the truth about God. Uh, there's a hand. Yes. I was just thinking about how um, the people, when they listened to Jesus, they were saying things like, he's speaking like no one has ever spoke before. And I was just thinking that the real authority in lies in, in truth and in what's sensible and, and makes all the puzzle pieces begin to fit together. Exactly. Reality, truth, is authoritative. That's what gives authority. And God, of course, is the source of all truth. And so the more we come closer to God, the more clearly we can present the truth about God as revealed in Christ, the more authoritative our presentations become. Comment. Um, I was just going to point out that whenever a false prophecy occurred, that God always sent either before or after the false prophecy his true uh, prophecy. Like that one prophet that uh, the old prophet lied to the younger prophet. God had spoken directly to him the truth. And then it sounded like from reading it that he wanted to stop rather than continuing on like God had told him. And so the false prophet came along, so he was... Even though he knew it was probably false, he wanted to sort of rationalize and use it as an excuse to do his own will. And the same thing sort of repeated over and over again with the different kings and um, other individuals. Um, we don't have time to go into Wednesday's lesson, but to kind of end on Wednesday's note, it's talking about the growth and understanding. It talks that prophets did not receive all God's light at one time. As they faithfully ministered as the Lord's servants, they receive more light and grew in their understanding. Why is that important to understand? If, a pro- if you read something from a prophet, do you take what you're reading as the final word? If you take it as the final word, do you, is your mind open to grow? Or have you shut the avenues, the channels for truth to help you grow? You see... The, the prophets were, were agents of God to bring truth, to stimulate us to open our minds to truth so that we can come to a direct connection through the Holy Spirit with God himself, the source of truth. And think this through. We are finite, yes. God is infinite. How big is the gap between finiteness and infinite? It's a big gap there. Why would we think we've ever got the truth? I mean, what I mean by got the truth, we've arrived. This is it. This is all there is. We've got the, we've got the whole enchilada. Why would we ever think that would be the case? And when we come to the point that we arrive at the truth, we have now got it, this is it, you see our mind shuts down and we're not open to learn any more truth. The, the attitude to develop, the attitude is to have a hunger for truth, a hunger that, that, that your mind wants to understand more truth at the early possible moment and you want to continually develop more and more and more never endings for all eternity growth and truth. Because through eternity we only come to understand God more fully through time. We will never end our knowledge, and our growth in the knowledge of God. And so, with, our, with the prophets as well, this is the way it is. They didn't know everything, and so when we read something from them, we take their insight, we take their wisdom, we pray, Lord, help me understand what the point is, and then help me grow in the truth so that I can understand even more. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are infinite, and that you have been so patient with us in our darkened minds, and we ask that you would send your Spirit that we can come to know the truth, know it in our minds, know it in our hearts, that we will know you, and that we will become your friends, and that we can do a, an effective job of spreading the truth about you to set minds free 
because we know this final message to go to the world is the truth about your character of love. And when people see that, then the end will come, we pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.